So one of the reasons for this series of messages in Ezra is that we are refreshing our worship center and as we have stated all the way through the process, we want to have the refreshment of our souls happen at the same time as the refreshment of a place. And so that's one of the big reasons why we're doing this. But there's more to it than that, and I'm going to describe that in just a moment. But first, I want to advertise something. Many of you received this when you walked in, picked one up. If you did not, hold up your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you. Just hold your hand up and we'll get, there's some over here, all over the place. We got some people that need one. Uh, This is a guide that our church staff has excellently put together that describes not just each week's messages with places for your journaling and notes, but also it has many other materials in here, like places to take notes for our Wednesday prayer meetings, as well as a little expression of what we're going to be doing, having a watch night prayer time on September 22nd that kind of inaugurates our worship center. Um, There's uh, opportunity for you, this is week one here, for you to prepare for Sunday by reading the chapter and journaling what you have thought through and then to think about what the big idea of the message is and where the outline's headed so that you can be ready in advance of the message. There are some reflection questions for you to think through after the message, as well as each week we alternate between communion and extended family prayer times in our services, and there'll be a little box that gives you an opportunity to think through in a guided way what we're asking from you in that worship time. So would encourage you to make use of this through the series in Ezra. You'll see that at the bottom here, there's a little white rectangle on the front page. This book belongs to, write your name down on that right now. Got a couple reasons for it. One is when you write your name on it, there's a easy, there's, there's, for whatever reason, there's a greater chance of you're actually using it. Thank you. <laughs> and the second, the second thing is that if you lose it, we can get it back to you. And the third is that when you lose it, we can get it back to you and we don't have to make more of them because they cost quite a bit to put together. So write your name down on this, would you? Okay, you, get, you got it all done? You got your name down? Great. All right. Now, let me talk about why else we're doing this series of messages in Ezra. Uh, Almost every day, I am appalled by the proposed and enacted policies of our national, state, and local leaders. Things that once were part of our collective moral conscience are now regarded as evil, and those matters that once were abhorrent to everybody are now regarded as virtuous. We've arrived at the time predicted in Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. I don't think I need to give you too many examples to demonstrate that moral collapse. 
I do in my article that I wrote for our Oakleaf introducing the Ezra series, so I'd encourage you to read that. What's particularly sad to me is the response of the church in America. They've tried, we've, as, a, as the church in America, uh, it's, the church has tried several answers to these sad trends. One attempt is to compromise and to join the culture in its headlong pursuit of self-destruction. So, the church waffles on matters of deep importance. Now that began with compromise over the issue of divorce, but that's been followed up very quickly on its heels by compromises on things like homosexuality, the recreational use of drugs, the determination actually, to avoid attaching any stigma to sin and its pernicious effects. Instead, the language that's used is, we've got to just love people. Well, you can, in fact, it is the most loving thing you can do to people is to point out that there are God's ways and there are ways to rebel against God. Today, one can find some church leader somewhere who will embrace almost any immoral position. And of course, the press loves that because it lends legitimacy to any particular immorality by having some person who's a church leader to say it's okay. But it's not just compromise that the church in America has failed one that I think is even more particularly true of our own fellowship is hypocrisy. The larger culture reports with glee that professing Christians divorce at the same rate, use pornography at the same proportion, engage in physical and sexual abuse, lie and cheat and steal, and then try to cover up their sinful tracks. And sadly, we see example after example of church leaders doing these very things and then attempting to justify their evils. It is such hypocrisy that leads people to say that the gospel is not true, that people on the outside of the gospel look at that and they say there can't be any truth there. Historically, the church has not stood strong against racism which is a hypocrisy that the opponents of the church use to shame the church into silence. Altogether, these various hypocrisies have muted the church. It's muted our moral authority and weakened our prophetic voice to declare right from wrong. So much so that one of the things that I've observed is that whenever there's a mystery on television and there's a pastor involved, he's the one that did it, right? I mean... It's guaranteed. There's not even, it's not even trying to hide the agenda that's at work there. Another attempted uh, answer by the church to address America's moral decline is to engage in the business of politics. Now, this engagement has always been less influential than the media portrays, but many Christians mistakenly believe that the answer to America's moral decline is just to get the right people into office. And that is flawed for three reasons at least. One is it leads to a false patriotism. The second is that the church ends up becoming partners with dirty people, 
Politics is a dirty business where compromise and give and take rule the day. And when we begin to say, well, this guy's immoral, but at least he's our guy, we've become partners in the wrong endeavor. It doesn't mean we don't vote unless our candidate is perfect, but it does mean that we don't get all sucked into a committed engagement with morally compromised evil people. The church, frankly, has been naive on that front ever since Constantine in the 300s. And then thirdly, simply as a pragmatic matter, the church no longer has the influence to reform society by political means. We are no longer a Christian nation. Of course, we never have been, if by Christian nation we mean that the majority of the population were genuine believers in Jesus bound for heaven. But even if we define Christian nation as people who agreed to Christian values such as what's found in the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, and even if we never obeyed them, we still must conclude today that this, even by that shallow standard, we are not a Christian nation. So now we have to acknowledge that reforming culture by political means will not succeed. I'm convinced that the only hope for our nation will come from a revival of the American church that leads to a reformation of our culture that leads to millions of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's our hope. We're simply too far gone for any other solution to take hold. Now, we can't make that happen. There isn't some program or system by which we can make that happen. But we can prepare ourselves for the work of the Holy Spirit. We can be revived ourselves. And so I'm inviting you on a journey as we consider the hope and promise of revival from the book of Ezra. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 1. We'll be looking at the entire chapter this morning as we look at the fulfillment of God's promises and the stirring of God. Now, as we look at this, I want to tell you the big idea. God has precise promises and he uses the rulers of this earth, whether they know he's using them or not. He uses the rulers of this earth to fulfill his plans and he stirs his people to action. Let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning, Ezra chapter 1. <clears throat> Those of you who have phones can probably get it faster actually than people who have Bibles if you haven't memorized the books of the Bible. I'd encourage you to do that by the way. If you've never memorized the books of the Bible, do so. It just makes it easier to find your way around the Bible. But if you're looking for Ezra, it's kind of right in the middle of the Old Testament and you can find it in your table of contents if you're really lost. So, Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, 
Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Please have a seat. In verses 1 to 4, we discover that it is the Lord, the God of Israel. That's a covenant name of God. The Lord rules governments. Now, the message of Ezra is based in reality. One of the hallmarks of my teaching is to describe to you that these things in the Bible describe real people who live in real places that had real things happen to them. They aren't just made-up fairy tales designed to inspire people to some lofty thought or other. They are real. They really happened. And the message of Ezra about the hope and promise of revival is based in reality. And that's why we read in the very first verse, and sometimes we just glance over these things, aren't, don't we? We're looking from some spiritual tidbit and we pass over in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. We don't even think about, well, who is this guy? What was he all about? And I'm glad you're asking the question. Here is Cyrus, the king of Persia from 600 to 530 BC. He's actually Cyrus II of Persia, but he was the founder of an empire. The Achaemenid, easy for me to say, Achaemenid Empire the first Persian empire. Under his rule, this empire embraced all of the previously civilized states of the ancient Near East, expanding vastly, eventually covering most of Western Asia, much of Central Asia, and all the way to the Indus River in the east. It was the largest empire that the world had ever seen up to that point. And that's why he describes himself in verse 2. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. 
Now his reign was well known for having respected the customs and religions of the lands that he conquered. Um, he, was, he was well known for this. It, he, he developed a central administration at a place called Pasargadae with, rather than provinces, they were called satrapies. It's just another fancy word for province or state. And he had 127 of them in his realm. Uh, he actually changed the foreign policy of empire building. Up until that point, with the Assyrians, the way they built an empire was they conquered people and they took those people and they carried them off and they replaced them with other people. And the Babylonians, following the Assyrians, did the same thing. Taking countries, carrying off the people, destroying all their stuff, and replacing them with other people from other parts that they had conquered. Just mixing people up. The idea of doing all that mixing up and destroying everything was that if you destroyed people's loyalties, the reasoning was, then you would cause them to be loyal to you. That didn't work, okay? And guess what? The God of heaven, the God of Israel, stirred up, do you see this in verse one? Stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to do something entirely different that had never been done before. And this thing entirely different was, rather than take people and conquer them and scatter them and destroy their places of worship, why don't I reverse the process of the Assyrians and the Babylonians? I'm going to allow people to return to their homelands and to rebuild their places of worship. And in fact, something was discovered archaeologically that demonstrates that what the Bible says here is exactly what happened. This is called the Cyrus Cylinder. In it, you have a description of this very Cyrus mentioned here in Ezra. Uh, by the way, this thing isn't very big. It's about eight inches long and about three inches around. You know, so it's, not, it's just a little thing. But it describes how Cyrus restored temples and repatriated exiled peoples all over his realm. Not just sending Jews back to Judah, but all kinds of peoples back to their homelands and rebuilt their temples of their gods too. And, and what's really interesting here is that we have this tangible evidence of this Cyrus doing something so remarkable. He's recognized for his achievements in human rights and politics and military strategy. Uh, here is what's called Cyrus' tomb. It's there to this day in Iran. And he remains a cult figure among many modern Iranians. Uh, his tomb serving as a place of reverence for millions of people. On the tomb, there's an inscription in Persian that's been placed, which says this, O man, I am Cyrus, son of Cambyses, who founded the empire of the Persians and was king of Asia. Do not therefore grudge me this monument. <laughs> now, we know that that was Cyrus's general policy, but did you know that there was a specific prophecy that was made about Cyrus and some specific prophecies made about the Jewish return? Let's look at some of those and just be amazed by them. Before we get to the one that's mentioned in verse 1, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, let me read you one from Isaiah. 
Now, Isaiah is writing at least 100 to 125 years before Cyrus ever comes on the scene. And here is what Isaiah 45 reads. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. It's mentioning this Cyrus 100 to 125 years before he ever shows up. Now, I can tell you how liberal scholars view this. They look at this and they say, ah, this has to be written after the fact. And therefore, it can't be prophecy. Because you can't mention Cyrus before he exists, right? And so if you're ever reading a commentary on Isaiah, and you read these words, Deutero-Isaiah, the reason they say Deutero is it means, it's just a fancy scholarly word for second, second Isaiah. You see, liberal scholars say that Isaiah 1 to 39 is one book and Isaiah 40 to 66 is another book and that the second book was written not by Isaiah but by somebody else that came later so that they could pretend to write prophecy but actually they're lying to you. It's not something that's predicted. It's actually something that happened after the fact. Are you following me? So when you guys, you young people go to college and they tell you about how the Bible is written with a bunch of fables and myths, this will be one of the things that they'll trot out to you. Oh, well, there's Deutero-Isaiah, and you're supposed to write that down for the test, right? I don't know. What you have is a remarkable prophecy. Thus the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. You see, it's almost like God knew that people would say that this was going to be faked. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Cyrus didn't quite get that, did he? I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. What a remarkable prophecy. And then we can come to the prophecies that are mentioned here in Ezra 1.1, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled in Cyrus. Look at Jeremiah 25. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. This is Jeremiah predicting the Babylonian destruction in 586 BC. And nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. There was a whole series of destructions by the king of Babylon that began around 600, a little before 600 BC, extended all the way to 586. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And that's what the Medes and the Persians did. They conquered the Babylonians. I will bring upon that land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. This is a fulfillment of the word of the Lord. And then, as if that were not enough, Jeremiah has yet another prophecy, one of the verses of which is, might be on a pretty little wall hanging you have in your house. But you might not know the context. Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, 
when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. You see, Judah did not deserve this. They were utterly uh, rebellious against their God, against the Lord. And God should have, by, by all rights, he could have completely wiped them out forever. And yet the promise of the Lord to David and to his descendants was such that he was going to bring them back after 70 years. And so that's where we get this famous verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. And it is then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's what Ezra's about here. It's predicted by Jeremiah what's going to happen in Ezra. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. This is revival. And gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is why we read in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdoms. And the, and the pro- proclamation was to send the people of Judah back and to have them rebuild the temple. It's a real place, and you know I have maps. Persian Empire with 127 satrapies. If you look at that red circle, that's the seat of the Persian Empire with Pasargadae, where Cyrus made his proclamations, where his tomb is. And then the purple circle is Babylon, which he conquered. And then you can see just how far away Persia is from Jerusalem. It's almost twice as far away as Babylon is, circled there in blue. This gives you the extent of Cyrus's empire. The pink part in Egypt was actually conquered by Cyrus's son, but everything else was conquered by this Cyrus, the great, he's called, from the Indus River in India all the way to all of the nation of Turkey. And then this is a little picture of some of his conquests and you see how he expanded and that's why he could say, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. You see, whatever God says, he says in reality, not in fantasy. The Bible does not contain made up stories designed to inspire It tells us the truth of what actually happened and why and how we ought to live in response. And so the Lord stirs up the spirit of the king. This new policy of the Persian Empire, in order to keep control of their empire that they wanted, they had to give up control. And that's what Cyrus is doing, giving up control, allowing people to return and to rebuild their temples and to worship as they see fit. 
even the Persian king acknowledges that this stirring is from the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, he did it with lots of nations and their local deities, as the Cyrus Cylinder reveals. But there appears here in verse 2 to be a special affection that Cyrus has for the God of the Jews and the Jewish people. The Lord, he uses God's covenant name. The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. He understands that this God is the one who bestows kingdoms. He understands what Judah's God has charged him to do, to build the God of Israel a house at Jerusalem. And he calls on the followers of the God of Israel and Judah to go up to Jerusalem, rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who's in Jerusalem. You'll notice that there's some limited understandings to what Cyrus may have had, but what he does understand is remarkable. The Lord rules governments. Whatever God's, wherever God's people have landed in Cyrus's realm, and by the way, they ended up all over this map. Okay, they didn't just stay in one little locality. The Jews, when they were exiled, went all over the place. And so, when Cyrus says, "Whoever is among you, among all these people, may his God be with him. Let him go up." And let each survivor, verse 4, in whatever place he sojourns, wherever he's living, let him be assisted by the men of his place with silver, gold, goods, beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second. The king of the world is commanding people. Now, if you got a Jewish neighbor somewhere, Give them silver and gold. Give them goods and beasts. And by the way, if you want to contribute to the building program of the temple in Jerusalem, you have an opportunity to give some free will offerings for that purpose. This is unprecedented. It's remarkable. It's a work of Almighty God. A couple of applications for us. For anyone with an understanding of history. This is a remarkable change of fortune for the Jews. But it wasn't fortune, was it? It didn't just so happen. It was the prompting of God. We live in a time that's remarkable for its opposition to God and his ways. In fact, the followers of the true God these days are often blamed for the world's ills. We are told that the only thing holding back the coming utopia is that there are still some laggards who are not getting with the program and agreeing with their progressive agenda. And it is easy for us to think that this is how it will always be. It is easy for us to feel defeated and paralyzed by the forces of evil that are arrayed against the Lord and against his people. It is tempting for some of us to think that the only hope we have is to fight violently and physically against the forces of evil. But the first four verses of Ezra point us to another way. And that way is God's interrupting power in the lives of unlikely rulers and neighbors. 
You see, not just the king, not just Cyrus was moved, but the Jewish neighbors in all the places where they lived throughout the Persian realm were moved to give silver and gold and goods and beasts and free will offerings for the building of the temple that is at Jerusalem. In fact, God uses the rulers of this earth, whether they know it or not, to fulfill his plans. Now let's look at verses 5 through 11. The Lord stirs his people and he gives them help. In verse 5, we have the heads of the fathers of key people of the house of Judah and Benjamin, two primary tribes. Then there's the temple families, the priests and the Levites. And then there's everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. You see, verse 1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, and now he's stirring up the people of Israel to go and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. God is stirring. This stirring was to action to rebuild the house of God. Verse 6, God actually prompts the favor from the neighbors, all who were about them, that is their neighbors, before they headed back to Jerusalem, aided them with vessels of silver and gold and goods and beasts and costly wares besides all that was freely offered. There's the free will offerings again. Why did they do this? It's because God's at work. That's not something that can be manufactured. It's not something that can be programmed. Revival is happening. God is at work. Verses 7 through 10, God restores one of the greatest losses that God's people had ever suffered. Verse 7, God uses Cyrus to reverse Nebuchadnezzar's actions. He brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away. And Cyrus brought these out in charge of Mithridath, who was the Persian treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, who was to take them back. And then there's an accounting of the number of the basins of gold and silver and censers and bowls of silver and gold and other vessels. And some smart-alecky people will read verse 9 and add them up and notice that it doesn't add up to all the things in verse 11. And they'll say, see, it's hopelessly in error. And they don't understand that the word all in 11 is a description of more than what's in verses 9 and 10, okay? So just relax a little bit if you want to be skeptical. More important than an accounting, I want you to think of the emotion attached to these objects. Several times throughout the scriptures, we have this description of Nebuchadnezzar carrying off the vessels of the temple that is in Jerusalem. You think, eh, so what? So he carried off some gold and silver stuff. Let's just get some more gold and silver. Doesn't have to be those exact same objects. What's the big deal? Who cares? You know, give us money instead and we'll make our own. Whatever. We have kind of a cavalier attitude. Look across the page, if you will, at 2 Chronicles 36 which was written around the time of Ezra, but it's describing what Nebuchadnezzar did in verse 17. Nebuchadnezzar brought up, or God brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion on young man or virgin, 
old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon and they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those that escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, until Ezra chapter one, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. What is the meaning of these objects? Why is it so important? I'm trying to think of a parallel and here's the best I could come up with. I want you to pretend for a moment that the United States gets conquered by some foreign power. Just try to contemplate that. Wrap your head around it. That the United States is conquered by some foreign power. And that foreign power goes to Washington, D.C., and they go to the National Archives, and they take the Declaration of Independence, the original document, and they take the Constitution, the original document. And they go and take all the portraits from the, the, the portrait hall, and they take... They go to New York City and they dismantle the Statue of Liberty and take it to their country and they rebuild the Statue of Liberty in their country. And whatever else kinds of things that you associate with some of America's more precious objects, this, this country just takes them. And then 70 years go by and then the people are allowed to return in the, the Declaration of Independence. Spirit of St. Louis, the space shuttle, the Apollo 11 spaceship, the Statue of Liberty, the Constitution is restored to us. Do you think we might have a little emotion attached to those objects? Now multiply that by about a billion and you have the affection that the Jewish people had for the objects in the temple that were part of the worship of Almighty God in Jerusalem. And they're able to take them back. How do we know that God is stirring? Well, we know it by the word of God, by prayer, by the fellowship of others, by the experience of worship, both personal and corporate. And perhaps even in this coming time where we celebrate the Lord's table, you will experience the stirring of God in your own heart. I hope so. I've been praying so that here in this hour, in this moment, we would experience the stirring of God. God stirred the heart of Ezra. He stirred his people. He gives them help. And maybe today the Lord will stir your heart. Maybe it's about a conviction over sin. Just an awareness of your sinfulness and saying, Lord, forgive me, I repent of it. Perhaps it's an action to take. The Lord will stir you to say, here is an action I must take now. Perhaps it's a repentance to offer to someone else, to go to them and say, I have wronged you, would you please forgive me? Perhaps it's a conviction to follow. But I ask you this question, how is God stirring you. 
You see, we see indications all over the Bible that God still rules in governments. And though we may not see it right now, he still does. But the more important question is, how is God stirring you to rebuild? This morning, as we gather for communion, I encourage you to ask yourself that question. How is the Lord stirring me? Would you pray with me? Lord, would you please visit us in this moment? Stir us to a conviction of sin or to an action to take or a repentance to offer someone for our wrongdoing, for a conviction that we need to follow up on. Help us, Lord, to do that. Lord, I know that the only way that we can do that is if we're genuinely saved. We genuinely have put our faith and hope in Christ. So I pray that anyone here who does not know the Savior has never put their faith and hope in Jesus to forgive them of their sin would do that right now. Now is the time of salvation, Lord, and help them to say, Lord, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. I know you took my place. You paid the penalty for my sin. You rose from the dead and I trust you and you alone. I don't trust anything that I do to get me right with God. I trust what you did, Jesus, to make me right with God. Lord, in this time of communion, as we remember what the Lord Jesus did for us, we ask for your stirring. In Jesus' name, amen.